Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Gene Eddy, who is the president and CEO of American Student Assistance, also known as ASA. She's also the author of a new book, Crisis Proofing Today's Learners. I just powered through it myself. A lot in there. We'll get into that in a bit. But before we do any of that, Gene, welcome to Trending in Education. So happy to be here. I really enjoyed the book. It's densely packed, but a surprisingly quick read. There's quite a bit to chew on in there. We'll get into that in a bit. We always like to start by getting to know you a little better. Can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your professional life? Sure. Most of my career, I was in higher education and I worked with young people in just about every facet of education you could think of. I started off in a financial aid office and moved on through the ranks, so to speak, did enrollment management, student affairs. My last position before I came to ASA as CEO, I was actually the chief operating officer at an institution in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. So I've stayed in the profession because kids mean a lot to me. And I would have to say that I got my energy from working with young people. Right, right. And then the shift to ASA, uh, folks may not be as familiar with the mission there. And also, if I understand it right, you've kind of led a really interesting pivot mm -hmm. to uh, ASA's approach and its strategy over your tenure there. Can you catch us up a little more on, on that aspect of your story? Sure. So for 20 of the years that I was in higher education, I was also on the board of ASA. And ASA is the federal guarantor. And as the, the loan programs changed, when President Obama changed those programs, we felt as though we still had a mission that we needed to fulfill on. And it basically had to do with working with young people. We've always worked with young people. Mm -hmm. And we took the lessons that we learned from those young people, which were a guarantor basically helps young students not only fill out their loans, like get them, take them out, but also how do you repay them mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for you? Right. As you might expect, we heard lots of things from our borrowers and a lot of them had to do with, you know, I wish I knew then what I know now. Right. I'm in a career where I really can't afford to pay back these loans. Mm -hmm. Well, heaven forbid, and this happens. I went to college. I didn't know why I was there. I took out all this debt. I left yeah. college and I have no way to pay it back. Right, right. The some college, no degree epidemic. Exactly. That is, you know, it's interesting. And you get into it, you know, in the book. I know it's important to ASA, but it's also a place where the risk in this loan, the risk mm -hmm. that the consumer is taking on is really kind of unique to education where frequently the institution takes on more of the risk. I thought that was an interesting aspect to what you were putting out there. Well, I think it was a situation where as a guarantor at that point, I was asked by the board to come in and kind of look at what we could do next. You know, yeah. what did the world need? What were we good at? And how did those two things align? Ah, a little, um, a little icky guy, perhaps? That's foreshadowing. A little, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I would have to say it's been a driving force in the last seven years, for sure. Uh -huh. But what we decided was that in order to continue our role in helping young people, we wanted to get ahead of the problem mm -hmm. rather than try and put a Band-Aid on at the end. Right. And so... We did an awful lot of research, and I would have to say 
I met some amazing people who helped us determine that the best time to actually work with young people to affect their awareness of what is happening in the world is when they're in middle school. Mm -hmm. And so we shifted our focus to helping young students discover in middle school really what they love to do and what they're good at. Yeah. And then show them a world of possibilities about what could that convert to. Right. And then help them as they go through school, like stay with them on the journey to kind of test and try things as they're in high school so that by the time they leave high school, they have a plan. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean I know for certain that I want to be this. What it means is I'm interested in these areas and there are all these possibilities to me. Now I know how I can take the next step. Right. And the interesting thing nowadays when you talk about the future of work and it's something that I do a lot on this podcast and I know it's something mm -hmm. you think about a lot is that the challenge for education nowadays is that we have to prepare students for jobs that don't even exist yet. And that requires a little more flexibility, adaptability than our educational institutions normally can avail of themselves. So we have to kind of reimagine the way we approach our educational problems. The other element that I really liked in the book was the focus on skills, which perhaps connects the dots a little bit here where we don't necessarily know the jobs downstream, but we know there's certain types of skills that are going to be particularly relevant for folks' future career prospects and positive outcomes in their lives. Can you expand a little bit on your thinking around skills? Because I found it to be a pretty clear breakdown of some of the relevance problems that are out there. You know, what are the real relevant skills, future-proofing, you know, the title yeah. of the book, Crisis Proofing Today's Learners. Can you talk a little bit about how skills connect? You know, I'm going to pick up on a word that you used as you were talking about this. It's one of my favorites, which is adaptability, because we need to teach young people how to be able to adapt, to think in different situations. You're talking about jobs that haven't been created yet. I would say even in current jobs, there is always going to be a learning curve. Mm -hmm. And what employers are looking for is someone who's able to pivot. Mm -hmm. So adaptability is crucial. Another thing that is absolutely crucial and employers talk about, and again, I'll go back to my higher ed days, employers had a problem with many even college graduates coming out, not being able to communicate. And by that, I mean, write have a business conversation. Yep. And I don't mean that you have to do memos. I mean, you have to comport yourself in a way that is business-like. Yeah. And we do not help our young people do that. And that's mm -hmm. going to be critical. Mm. Another thing that students really need to know how to do, people need to know how to do, is problem solve. There's nothing like, and I work with people every day, who I would hope when they have an issue that they come into me and say, this is what the problem is, and this is how I'm going to solve it. Right. Not, here's your problem, and solve it. <laughs> right. Employers love employees who can do that. Yeah. And I also think, and I'll really lean into this one, digital fluency. This generation of young people have grown up with this. They expect this, and I would say more and more and more, our economy is asking us to be digitally fluent. Right. So people have to have the skills to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And then they also need to be able to analyze what they're seeing and doing. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot. 
that's a lot. Those were a lot of skills. Yeah. And I understand that in our current systems and schools, there's a regimented list of things that have to be delivered. Right. They have to be delivered within a certain amount of days, a certain amount of hours. Right. And teachers that I talk to, and I've, I've talked with many, they simply don't have time to integrate some of these things into the classroom. They just right. don't. Right. And so what you need is, and, and I've met these folks as well, you know, really creative superintendents of schools who decide that they are going to reimagine how the curriculum is offered. Yeah. And have been quite successful at it. But mm -hmm. they're rare. Right. They are really rare. Right. And a lot of it involves integrating from middle school. And I did like that note about, you know, how solidly formed the clay is and how much pressure <laughs> is. I, as a parent of a four-year-old, I, I, I don't even think about the amount of pressure that is on a teenager as they're 15, 16, 17 years old. But before that, when they're developmentally ready to really Mm -hmm. Think about pathways. The clay isn't fully set. Then it's more a question of how do you integrate that career-based learning, problem-based learning, like a lot of the elements that a ASA seems to be focused on. How do you integrate that into a high school math class or you know into a busy schedule of a seventh or an eighth grader? How do you think about addressing that? So I think that we have to talk more and more about beyond the classroom. You know, one of the, well, the primary reason we decided to go to where kids are, which is on their mobile devices, Right. we went digital in a big way. And we did it because we wanted to, I'm going to say, interfere with the number of hours seventh and eighth graders spend on their cell phones. Right. Because they spend a lot. And some studies say four hours a day, others say much higher. Yeah. If we can have something that is fun, it has to be fun. But if we have something that's fun, that will actually allow young people to discover things about themselves mm -hmm. and give them some information that they may need. Yeah. Again, that is fun, will allow them to be able to make, you, you made a point, in fact, about the idea of relevance. Yeah. Kids need to be able to see how what they've got in the classroom relates to how they're going to use it later on. Right. I always go back to, and I'm most, most probably one of the strange people when I was in high school, but I liked math. Yeah. But I can't tell you the number of young women that I went to high school with who said, I'm never going to use this. Why do I have to use this, et cetera? Right. And had there been some kind of connector at yeah. that point in time, mm -hmm. I think that more and more young women would have, you know, embraced the idea of, gee, I need to learn this and this is why, and look at all the cool things I can do with it. That's what we have to bring right now. Mm -hmm. And so we have decided that we can play our part by going beyond the classroom and doing things with digital. Yeah. And I would have to say where we deal with in, in the vicinity in our platforms, about 12 million kids a year. Wow. Yeah. So they like it. Yeah. Which is half the battle. Right. Exactly. And I thought, you know, you you referenced gaming and, you know, putting stuff into kind of like the digital context of Gen Z, I guess. Mm -hmm. And even I don't want to call it Generation Alpha, but that's what I keep hearing or Alpha Generation. Mm -hmm. We yeah. got a we got a workshop, you know, that's a separate podcast episode, but we got to workshop better names for that generation. But I it is like, yeah, but it is like AI 
on top of all that. So the games mm-hmm. are going to get better. You know, we haven't even really seen what does it mean to have the generative AI intersecting with next generation gaming. You know, gaming mm-hmm. tends to be even ahead of education and other sectors in terms of its innovation cycles. The lid's going to get blown off a lot of that stuff. And then kids are going to have to come back into a classroom and really struggle with making that connection. How do you think about the flip side of it? Like some of the risks, I know you noted some of the challenges that social media is playing with the mental health and the well-being of teens. It's a dilemma. You know, both sides have their challenges. How do you think about some of the challenges around social media and screen time and, and those kinds of things? Well, I do think that, and, and I will look to parents here, I think parents need to be very aware of what their kids are doing. And I realize that that can be difficult because uh, I can just speak from my own experience with my grandson, and who I mentioned in the book. You know, they have a tendency to go off in their own world, be on their phone, et cetera. Yeah. But there has to be a point in time when you're like, you're saying, okay. Yeah. What's going on? What are you doing? How long have you been on, et cetera, those kinds of things. Right. But I also think that, again, using things that are engaging, worthwhile, and informative. Yeah. You know, to basically go into that space and be able to offer options. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing about uh, watching anybody, a a young person on social media, they do a lot of, you know, just flipping through, flipping through, et cetera. And it has everything to do with the level of engagement. Right. So we need to do, all of us need to do a better job in making sure that the things that we are offering up within those veins are engaging where kids want to go and use them. Right. Yeah. And I like the way you make the distinction between informal and formal learning. It's something that I've talked about in the past, but I, I thought you fleshed it out with some interesting depth where... It sounds like you're moving more comfortably into the informal space, you know, to your point, just to kind of catch them where they are, catch them when they're at ease and and ideally reach them with relevance, too. That's the other element. Mm-hmm. It's got to be fun and also relevant. That's where I do think there's an element to the story you're trying to tell that is thumb stopping if you hit them the right way. If it's like I'm actually talking to you, the person on TikTok right now. I'm talking to you about your career. Mm-hmm. It does feel like there's an element of salience and ability to kind of break through the noise when you can connect it to future career outcomes. It reminds me when I was talking to Mark Winchettle about teaching climate change and reaching the rising generation, talking to them about something they really want to hear about. Mm-hmm. There is a breakthrough opportunity when you actually hit on a story that is relevant to them. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the storytelling? You know, I, I love the example of your grandson, you know, kind of seeing what it's like and understanding what it might feel like to be these folks who are trying to navigate a very complex future. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how storytelling weaves into this? You know, I talk a bit in the book about, you know, mentoring. I, I do quite a bit of that. And I would also say that it's very, very important, and this goes hand in hand with storytelling, to be able to introduce young people to figures who they can identify with, and whatever that might happen to be, to be able to share 
the journey that they were on and how they approached it and the problems that they had, et cetera. Right. It suddenly becomes very real to a young person if they are looking at a particular career interest. I'll give you an example. So within Futurescape, which is one of the platforms we have, mm -hmm. once students have gone through a gateway, which has allowed them to figure out you know, their kind of interests in what they're good at, then a world of opportunities are open to them. It's actually, it looks like a planetarium. Mm. And there are planets, and the planets are glowing if they are, you know, truly in line with interests and attributes. And then there are little planets that are not totally involved with what a student may want to do, but they're on the edges. So sure. they could go look at them. But if a student is going to click on one of those planets, the big one that's glowing, they're going to find that there are a number of careers that pop up. And then what happens then is that they can actually go and do a day in the life or listen to someone yeah. who is a physicist or who is a veterinarian or who is something like that to talk about mm. what their day is like, how they got there, those kinds of things. Yeah. And I would have to say that students will come out of that. And what we do is we analyze what a student does, you know, do they go to get more information or do they leave it behind and go someplace else? Right. Which says to me, they've heard enough mm -hmm. that they want to learn more or they don't. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I've done a lot of conversations and thinking about futures thinking and being scenario based so that you're able to be, you know, anti-fragile and resilient and, mm -hmm. you know, crisis proof you know, in terms of your planning for an organization or, you know, setting a strategy. And the same thing's true for really students. And one of the ideas there is that it's important to think about possible futures, even if they don't happen. And that's the other element that I, I thought was interesting in the book is that it's not like there's one single true path for any of us. It's more, there are, well, this may be where the idea of Ikigai comes in mm -hmm. where like there are different factors that really are involved in us setting our path and we need to be asking ourselves the right questions thinking about things in the right way so that we find one of the many possible scenarios that are out there for us and ideally one that achieves some of our goals and gives us happiness and other positive outcomes mm -hmm. but can you Describe some of that, maybe, you know, building off of the idea of Ikigai for folks who may not be familiar with it. What's the right way to start tackling these problems and, and really thinking about finding that path for you? Well, let me start with Ikigai. Really determining what you love to do is important. And also, I would say, before I go into that, that determining what you're good at really matters. So those two things together really kind of start you off on this journey that you're going to go on. Mm -hmm. In the research that we've done, we have so many young people saying to us that they couldn't determine what they were good at. So therefore, they couldn't even start down this path. Mm. So a lot of work needs to be done with young people discovering what that is. Right. And right now we're not doing a good job with that. Right. So so that certainly needs to be focused on. Mm -hmm. But if that is possible, if we can do that, and I believe we can, then it is a matter of taking what someone is good at, those attributes, 
and being able to connect it to careers. Mm-hmm. You talk about a path and saying that there isn't one path. I would say that a path, you know, it twists and turns and goes around things, et cetera. And I think that those are the places where change is going to be made. Now, it used to be that young people would have five careers in the course of their life. Right. I think it's now up to nine. Yeah. So that means that those skills I talked about before, the adaptability, being able to handle a crisis, problem solving, those kinds of things, are going to really arm somebody to be able to do those pivots as they Mm -hmm. proceed down this path. Mm -hmm. One thing that we don't talk enough about, talking about Ikigai again, is what does the world need? Mm -hmm. And that's going to be critically important for somebody's path because those are going to be the opportunities that are going to be present. Right. And so being aware of how that happens is going to be critical. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the fourth element is what you can get paid for. Well, obviously, if you're going to continue in this life, you have to have some means of sustaining yourself. But I would say that I would expect that if young people have the durable skills that I've talked about in the book, and they have an idea of the things they're good at, and most Mm -hmm. of us are not just good at one thing, right? and be able to relate how those things that you're good at can relate to those jobs that are out there, right? then we have an opportunity for success on every end. Mm -hmm. And I would say right now, if you look at our economy, we have over 11 million unfilled jobs right now, Mm -hmm. 11 million. Mm -hmm. And people talk about a skills gap. It's got everything to do with there's no connection being made between what people are good at and what jobs are out there that they could fill. Right. And we, we, again, we've got to address that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does remind me of a conversation I was having with Jim Hollis at the Calculus Roundtable, and he was talking about bringing kids in to a video game design shop in the Bay Area Mm -hmm. and how they had never been in an elevator before oh and and then they were suddenly understanding oh i i need to use calculus to figure out how to design this game it's a way in which those very specific stories about just mm-hmm. exposure it's another place where you know thinking about gaming it makes me think about some of the use cases around virtual reality and kind of imaginative media that's out there, you know, gaming we talked about as well, where maybe I could get a really personal feeling of what it might be like to do this type of work. You talk about that also through internships and apprenticeships. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you're pro ship in the book, if I recall correctly. But can you talk about some of the ways in which it can be made real? For kids, like, you know, oh, maybe I don't even pursue this, but I could. And just by virtue of thinking that I could, it almost elevates them into a different way of thinking. Well, this summer, we had five interns here. Mm -hmm. And they were high school students, except one of them had just graduated. Right. And they basically went and worked in various departments within ASA. Mm-hmm. And it had everything to do with what they were interested in mm-hmm. and what they thought they were good at. Mm-hmm. You know, so we had someone in the tech area, we had someone in marketing, we had someone in philanthropy, et cetera. Sure. And what was very, very interesting was they spent a lot of time learning how to be in an office. Mm-hmm. 
you know, what are the protocols? Yeah. What do you do and not do? Right. You know, do you run down the hallway? Do you <laughs> do yeah. you scream at someone across right. the way? Yeah. Things that, you know, we take for granted yeah. all the time. Elevators and restrooms from personal exactly. experience. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Kitchenettes, you know, like how do you be entertaining by the water cooler without spending too much time by the water cooler? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so at the end of the summer, they did a, a presentation to us, a senior staff, and basically talked about a how-to list that they had created about being in an office setting yeah. and how we needed to use it for the next set of interns because it was going to make it so much easier for them. Yeah. You know, that's kind of thing where it seemed so elementary to us yeah. was yeah. enormous to them. That's amazing. I could already envision the TikTok series if it isn't already out there of them going through, because that's kind of my point about relevance where, yeah. you know, and then frequently you want to hear it from a peer. You don't necessarily want to be told by the the hashtag olds, right. you know, like how to do something. And that's where it's been nice to see how you're unlocking through their own voices, through their own stories. That's another element in the book too, that there's a lot of case studies and examples that you're kind of bringing to light as part of the conversation. The other thing I wanted to touch on, you talked about higher ed pretty frankly, and as someone with a lot of experience in higher ed, there are ways in which it's contributing to some of the problems that are out there. And I thought you did a nice job of describing some of the challenges that the institutions are facing, and then also how we're going to probably need to reimagine how higher ed factors in to the future of work. Could you expand a little bit on your thinking there? Sure. Well, first and foremost, you know, as you say, I was in higher ed a long time and I loved my time there. I used to get up at orientation and talk to entering classes and I would talk to them about how this could be just a beyond fabulous experience, a true life changer, hmm. because kids go to college not only to learn more things, but frankly, they meet lifelong friends. Yeah, they yeah. oftentimes meet their life partner. Right. They make connections that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. Right. So, you know, I and I always said to them, you know, take advantage of this time, go mm -hmm. exploring, do all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The issue at hand is that college has now become so expensive that we need to do a better job in arming a young person who's leaving high school and going to college. College is great, but we have to be able to figure out how to first off, make sure that the young people going there have some idea of why they're there. Right. And then I think the colleges need to do a better job in revamping the approach. And I say this with all due respect, but there have to be those elements. You know, employers talk, and, and I realize that college education is not just about a job. Right. But so many people now, and I would say most parents now, want to see the return on investment. If yeah. they're going to spend this much money, then okay, what does this convert to? Mm -hmm. It's employers, and they do, tell career offices in particular, and I worked with them closely, that there are things that are missing that young people don't have that are coming to us. Then we should be listening, and we should figure out a way to integrate that into what is being offered right now. Right. And I realize this is tough because institutions have been set up hundreds of years ago. Right. We have faculty who are tenured in many, many cases. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you do that? How do you keep the best of what you've got and then be able to add those things that are going to be critical moving mm -hmm. forward? Yeah. And I do believe, and we're seeing it, um, people are choosing not to go to college. Yeah. The numbers are down. And in addition to that, there are more and more young people who are opting for college-like choices yeah. that aren't really college. Right. And, you know, I talk in the book certainly about different pathways. Mm -hmm. And I am all for having a young person discover that they are really interested in an area where maybe they can pursue it through an apprenticeship. Right. Or an on-the-job learning opportunity. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everybody has to go to college. Mm -hmm. But I also would say to you that if we do a better job in arming our kids as they leave high school, I think more kids will go to college and more kids will graduate from college. Right. Yeah. And I also think there are plenty of favorable outcomes that don't necessarily require college. And those trends are also changing where you, you noted in the book as well, like a college degree as a requirement for a high paying job. That's something that is breaking apart to some extent. There's a lot of folks who are really advocating for that also from an equity and, and, and social justice perspective. And then similarly, the economics of the ships versus higher ed, where I'm upskilling, but I'm also earning over that period of time, as opposed to I'm upskilling, but if I don't get that sheepskin at the end, I'm not really going to get any of the benefit. And then at the same time, I'm paying either through loans or you know out of pocket, really at a level that many Americans are, are kind of closed out of. How does this relate also to questions around equity and questions around maybe inequities within the predominant model nowadays and how you know we can potentially open up pathways, ideally that let a new model start to take shape? Well, you know, I think that college for all is something that is quite outdated. The notion is quite outdated. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say there is still there is still a stigma attached to someone who doesn't go to college. Right. And parents will say that, you know, they feel like they've let their kids down if they don't go to college. And mm -hmm. the reverse of that is true. The kids say, well, if I don't go to college, I'm yeah. gonna really going to just you disappoint note, mom and dad. Yeah, you note in the book, the mm -hmm. surprising percentage of students who feel like their parents want them to be in college more than they want to be in college themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that with education, with kind of shining a light on this, as far as the number of worthwhile, and I would say lucrative careers that are out there yeah. that don't require a college degree. Unfortunately, if kids can't do anything about that or relate to that, if they don't even know it exists. Right. So we have to provide them with that information to let them see that. Mm -hmm. I don't for a minute believe that everybody needs to go to college. I believe that there are a number of different ways that someone can connect to a career and be incredibly happy and also be incredibly successful. I tell this story every time I get into this conversation, but I was having a conversation with my primary care physician. I live in Massachusetts. I'm surrounded by some of the best hospitals in the world. Mm -hmm. I have an unbelievable primary care physician. And she talks to me about what I do and asks me about various things that are going on. And she said to me at one point, she said, you know, Jean, a plumber in Massachusetts makes more than a primary care physician. Mm, True. Right, right. And there are many 
I mean, and particularly some of the fields that are opening up like cybersecurity, right. energy. Mm-hmm. There are jobs out there right now that don't require a degree that are starting around $70,000 a year. Right. And all that really requires is a little bit of training sure. and some on-the-job experience. Right. We've got to open those doors. We've got to let young people see what's available to them. Right. And also a little bit of the try before you buy, you know, understand that mm-hmm. it's not a one and done. You know, as a parent of a four-year-old, I'm trying to discourage, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up when, to your point, he'll probably be six, seven different things. Who knows? You know, yeah. and I don't even know what those things are going to be. But it's like, you know, how do you make sure that they're all in favorable outcomes and places where, you know, there's some hope, you know, amidst some of the challenges here? You know, folks also tend to get a little dystopian thinking about, you know, artificial intelligence and the future of work and how all that stuff's potentially going to play out. How do you stay hopeful? How do you inspire folks? I think, and I'll go back to the word that you use and I use a lot, which is relevance. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to engage with our young people, with kids, to show them how the things that they are learning are going to relate to something that they absolutely will need and want moving forward. You know, I love technology, use it all the time, but technology goes so far. Technology doesn't have those attributes that we talk about, those soft skills that I keep talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't have that. And that's what we can bring. That's what young people can bring. Mm -hmm. And particularly this generation of young people, they use technology incredibly well. Right. And they use it as they need to use it. We have in one of our platforms where kids can test and try things, one of the things that they can do is they can do a job interview, a mock job interview. Mm-hmm. And they can do it with either a human being or a robot. Uh-huh. The kids, you always use the robot. I mean, sure. 99% of the time they use the robot. Yeah. Because in their level of you know comfort, is incredibly high and they maximize what they see in the tech. Yeah. So if we give them the skills they need to be able to manage that, just think of how great this could be. Think of Mm -hmm. how, you know, we could affect the economy. We could affect happiness. We could affect a whole host of it. Yeah, absolutely. I can already envision myself conducting job interviews in a robot suit based on what what you were just describing. (laughs) But uh, it's been an amazing conversation. Gene Eddy is the president and CEO of ASA, ASA ASA.org, if you want to find them. The book is Crisis Proofing Today's Learners, Reimagining Career Education to Prepare Kids for Tomorrow's World. It's been a lot of fun having you on, Gene. You know, as we're wrapping up here, any ideas, any thoughts that we haven't gotten to? Any other messages you wanted to get out there to listeners before we conclude? I hope you read the book. Yeah. And and secondly, I really hope that parents will work with their kids to start early mm. and start opening up some of these opportunities for them at a very early age so they can start exploring. Amazing stuff. Gene Eddy from American Student Assistance. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, write us a review, tell your friends. Do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.